0: Please note, this episode was recorded before President Trump tested positive for COVID-19. The November election is just weeks away and this election season has felt unlike any other. The COVID-19 pandemic has upended the voting process leading to questions about whether the candidate who is ahead on election night will be the one with the most votes in the end. And to make the stakes even higher, the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg has left a vacancy on the Supreme Court and Republicans and Democrats are gearing up for a huge battle over the confirmation of a new Supreme Court justice. From the University of California, Irvine, I'm Aaron Orlowski, and you're listening to the UCI Podcast. Today, I'm speaking with Rick Hassan, who is a Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at UCI's School of Law. He's also a CNN election law analyst and the author of the book, Election Meltdown, Dirty Tricks, Distrust, and the Threat to American Democracy, which was published earlier this year. Professor Hassan, thank you for joining me today on the UCI podcast.
1: It's great to be with you.
0: So this election is so different from previous presidential elections with the pandemic and mail-in balloting especially. And it's always possible that one candidate could achieve an overwhelming victory and the election resolves with a clear winner. Do you think that this is likely?
1: I do, uh, if the polling today is correct. Um, I think of myself like a um, uh, an engineer working in a nuclear reactor. I'm spending my time thinking about the small risks of a total meltdown. And uh, you know we, we've gone from a minuscule risk of a major problem to a small risk of a major problem. Uh, but I still think that um, if the polling is correct, and the polling stays the same, then it won't be particularly close. Uh, things could change. If it gets very close, then I think it could get very uh, uncertain and and quite ugly.
0: Well, let's uh, look at a couple of ways that could happen, just to make sure that we're looking at the worst-case scenarios. But so one option seems to be that a candidate could have the lead on election night, but then mail-in ballots, which are usually counted later start to come in and the outcome shifts. How might that possibility play out?
1: Well, let's talk first about why uh, it takes longer to count mail-in ballots. I think this point is important. Uh, when you vote by mail, uh, you're not in person in the polling place. And so they need to make sure those election officials that you are who you say you are and that you've done everything right. So it takes a lot longer to process or it's sometimes referred to as pre canvas those absentee ballots. Um, in some states, Uh, like Florida, which has a lot of vote by mail ballots, they start that process 22 days before the election. And so uh, we'll have a pretty good sense in Florida about uh, election results on election night because they're gonna have a lot of those absentee ballots done. In a place like Pennsylvania, um, where they used to not allow anyone who wants to vote by mail, but this year uh, they've moved to allowing that, they're gonna have a flood of absentee ballots and they're not well familiar with processing those. So it could be that we'll have days or even a week or more before we would know the the totals. Now, in the past, Democrats and Republicans tended to use vote-by-mail about the same amount. Uh, There wasn't really uh, one party using it more than the other. However, in this election, in part because President Trump has made a lot of statements calling into question the validity and the accuracy of mail-in ballots, what we're seeing is that uh, Republicans are expressing more interest in voting in person than Democrats. Um, Now, uh, even putting aside that shift, one of the things that we uh, have seen historically is that Democrats tend to vote later when they're voting by mail, and so that the later counted absentee ballots tend to skew Democratic. This is what's known as the blue shift, and it's the reason why you may remember uh, former UCI professor Katie Porter won her election about two weeks after Election Day. There were, in fact, seven races uh, in Southern California for Congress in 2018 where Republicans were ahead on election night, but as later counted, absentee ballots were processed and then counted. uh, Democrats took the lead and ultimately won those races. So it could well be the situation if the, say, the election comes down to Pennsylvania, that Trump is ahead as in-person ballots are counted on election night. He could even try to declare victory based on that. But uh, with so many outstanding absentee ballots, maybe Biden ends up being the winner. That would be a very volatile situation if Trump is claiming he's the winner and he's casting doubt on the validity of the votes uh, uh, that, that are being counted afterwards. Um, so that's a period, that's one of the nightmare scenarios, one of the things that keeps me up at night, um, especially if he tries to sue or otherwise tries to block ballots from being counted. Uh, I think that would be a quite a volatile and potentially dangerous situation for our democracy. Well, and we've
0: had at least somewhat similar situations like this in the past, or or at least one about 20 years ago, uh, when George W. Bush and Al Gore were running for president, and uh, there was a recount in Florida. Can you refresh our memory? You know, what happened in Florida that year?
1: So I think the Florida situation is very different from the situation today. Mm. It, it, It would be the same if we had a very close election. But uh, in Florida, you didn't have one candidate claiming that the ballots were fraudulent. Instead, what you had was a very um, close margin uh, between Bush and Gore. And uh, in the state of Florida, Florida turned out to be the state that was um, pivotal in terms of the electoral college. So whoever won Florida was going to be the next president. And it turns out that uh, Florida election officials uh, didn't run their election particularly well. We later learned it's not just Florida, but in lots of parts of the country, they were using very bad voting machinery and had some confusing voting rules. So one of the things they used uh, were what were called punch card ballots. So these were pieces of cardboard. Uh, they were stuck into a machine and they had these little pre-perforated uh, areas and you used a little pin to punch them out. Uh, these were computer cards that were run through a vote counting machine. This was really state-of-the-art technology in 1960. And uh, so one of the things we learned is that when people would go to punch out the little hole that had to be read in order to figure out if you were voting for Bush or Gore or for one of the other candidates, sometimes you didn't punch it out all the way because so the machines would get stuck with these little pieces of paper called Chad. So sometimes they'd still be hanging on, hence the name Hanging Chad. Or sometimes they just would be slightly touched, so they'd be sticking out. That was the pregnant Chad. And Florida election officials had to figure out how they counted these ballots. There there were other problems, too. For example, there were 13 candidates running for president in uh, that election. And uh, in Florida, in Palm Beach County, um, they put the uh, names of the candidates on both sides of the ballot. So when you went to vote, uh, the candidates' names didn't exactly line up. This was the so-called butterfly ballot. So people who thought that they were voting for uh, Gore uh, might have been voting for Pat Buchanan, who was a third-party candidate. And, uh, you know, Pat Buchanan was a very anti-Israel candidate, uh, which was funny in Palm Beach County, you had a lot of um, Jewish voters voting for for, uh, Pat Buchanan, who they would not have voted for if they (laughs) uh, were trying. And also the way it was lined up, it looked like if you wanted to vote for Gore and his vice presidential candidate Lieberman, maybe you had to punch the holes twice. We also had a situation in... um, Duval County, Florida, where the instructions that were sent to voters said, make sure you vote on every page. And again, because there were so many presidential candidates uh, on that ballot, the number of uh, candidates went over onto two pages. So there were 26,000 voters who voted twice for president and their votes were thrown out. Wow. Uh, so there were a lot of problems with how the election was run. Um, there were also very, uh, uh, controversial political decisions, Republican election administrators siding with, uh, rulings that would help, uh, Bush. Democratic election administrators siding with rulings that would help Gore. And the case ultimately goes to the Supreme Court, uh, where the court stops the counting. And it's just still to this day was, you know, one of the most momentous and controversial uh, moments in, in modern American political history.
0: Well, I have to ask, has our election technology improved since 2000?
1: Well, so that is the one bright spot, I would say, in terms of um, how our elections today compare to uh, 2000. We've gotten rid of the uh, very worst of those voting machines. Those punch card machines are not used anywhere. Uh, In most places today, people vote with a piece of paper uh, whether they're voting electronically uh, or not, it produces a piece of paper that can be recounted. So that's really important because today we're worried about hacking of voting machines and all of that. And the best kind of antidote to a potential hacking is uh, being able to conduct a recount and being able to do an audit to make sure that the results announced uh, from looking at the totals on the machines match what a human eye would say, Um in lots of ways, we're not better off than 2000. We still have partisans running our election rules uh, and, and deciding on our election rules. We uh, have social media today, which makes people more hyped up and apt to form into their, you know, onto their respective teams. Um, we we have uh, more polarized political parties, you know, fewer swing voters than we had in 2000. So in a lot of ways, we're in worse shape than we were in 2000, except when it comes to the voting technology, where you're much less likely to have your votes thrown out because of bad machinery. But I I will point something out uh, in particular on this, and I think this is important. You're much more likely to be disenfranchised if you vote by mail than if you vote in person because voters make a lot of errors in how they fill out their ballots. Mm. If you don't follow the rules exactly, your ballot might be tossed. So if you have to sign your ballot or in some states, you have to do other things like uh, you need to get a witness uh, uh, in – Pennsylvania, which is a key swing state, uh, we know that if you don't put your ballot into the separate secrecy envelope, which is provided to assure you have a secret ballot, your ballot will be thrown out. Uh, so there's now this no naked ballots campaign going on in Pennsylvania. So, um, you know, your chances of inadvertently being disenfranchised uh, are higher because there's not an election official there to tell you if you're messing up. And so it's really important if you're gonna vote by mail to make sure you follow all the rules. And in not, not in every state, uh, are you given the opportunity to cure, to uh, fix your ballot if for some reason they find that there's a problem with it?
0: Well, that's really important for for all of us to remember, especially if uh, we don't want to go to the polls uh, because of pandemic and COVID-19 concerns. Well, you mentioned that uh, the, the Florida case in 2000 was decided by the Supreme Court eventually. Um, And so today there's a whole new complication on the court with the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So in your view, how does her passing change the dynamic on the Supreme Court?
1: Well, I think that Justice Ginsburg's passing is probably not likely to have an impact directly on the election in terms of how, uh, you know, if if a dispute gets to the court. First of all, it's going to have to be a very close election for a post-election dispute to get to the Supreme Court. Um, second, uh, even though there are only eight justices right now on the court, they're divided five to three along conservative and liberal lines. So it's, you know, not, not at all likely that there'd be a deadlock, although of course it's possible. And a ninth justice could be the one who breaks that deadlock. Um, but you know, you'd have to have, you know, uh, like in the 2000 election, something outcome determinative going to the Supreme court. And the chances of that happening in any particular election, right, it's only happened once in our lifetimes. Uh, and so, yes, lightning could strike twice. Uh, and yes, Trump is saying that he wants a ninth justice to decide the election. Uh, but that doesn't mean that that makes it likely to happen.
0: Well, I think that one of the questions that is probably on so many listeners' minds uh, as they're thinking about voting, mailing, their, mailing in their ballots or going to the polls, is is voter fraud common? Do we need to be concerned about tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of fake ballots getting into the election and pushing it one way or the other?
1: Well, this is something else that the president has been pushing uh, without uh, good evidence. Uh, Voter fraud is a very small problem in the United States. It's been that way for, uh, I'd say, about the last uh, half century uh, in the United States. Uh, And uh, when voter fraud does happen, it's uh, somewhat more likely to happen uh, with the use of mail-in ballots because they're out of the control of election officials, but it's still extremely unlikely to happen and not on the kind of scale that could swing a presidential election. I mean, imagine if you were a foreign country, as uh, President Trump or Attorney General Barr has said, and you want to send in uh, counterfeit absentee ballots. Well, first of all, you're going to have to figure out exactly which ballot you need for a particular voter and you know voters live in different districts so the ballots look different you have to have the exact kind of paper most states that send out these absentee ballots use barcodes on those ballots which uh, help track the ballots to make sure that they go in and come out uh, properly you'd have to uh, do that Uh, you'd have to do this on a large enough scale right thousands of ballots that you could potentially swing an election and voters who go to vote would be told well no you can't vote you already voted with your absentee ballot so uh, it would be easily detected. Um, it would not work. And, uh, you know, uh, the only reason it might happen is because the president and Attorney General Barr seem to be asking for it to happen. I mean, I don't even know where these ballots would be mailed. If you get a, you know, a postmark from Moscow, uh, I think <laughs> that ballot it might look a little suspect. Uh, And, you know, of course, I also have to get there in the window to be counted. Uh, So there are all kinds of problems with these kinds of schemes. Voter fraud is a small problem. It's not a non-existent problem. We do see isolated instances. I was just looking at a report of a man who voted his dead mother's ballot in 2012, 2014, and 2016, voted by mail. Uh, You know, and he was uh, later put in jail. And of course, he should be punished for that. But one guy voting his dead mother's ballot is not going to swing an election unless an election is swung by one vote. (laughs) And, uh, you know, typically our elections are not nearly that close. Even Florida 2000 was not that close. Um, We have a lot of safeguards in place. Uh, to make uh, fraud uh, unlikely and to make it easy to be caught. And, uh, you know, anybody who would try to engage in this kind of activity is potentially committing a felony, which is, you know, uh, I don't know about you, but I think of um, being charged with a felony is a pretty good deterrent against anything uh, that might be illegal.
0: Yeah, I I try and avoid that as well. I think it's generally a good practice. So um you know as we're thinking about voters submitting their ballots and um you know getting those in the mail or dropping them off at the polling place so that seems to be kind of step 1 um but then we see on election night on TV these maps of blue and red states so you know what happens in between essentially you know what happens from the the level of submitting ballots to actually getting
1: to a result cuz it's not exactly simple. So uh, when you see those results on TV, they are unofficial results. When a, a network declares George Bush has won the state of West Virginia, that's not officially true. That is a projection. That, that is, that's a prediction of what election officials are going to say. It actually takes at least a few weeks for these things to be finalized. Every night, uh, no, there's mistakes made when numbers are sent in. You know, if somebody transposes a digit, everything is double and triple checked. You know, people are tired; they've worked many sixteen-hour days when they're providing uh, ballot counts at the at the end of the election night, and then, of course, in places like Orange County and lots of parts of the country, there are many more ballots that are coming in. And in California, there's a period of time after election day. Or ballots that have come in that are postmarked by election day can be counted. So eventually, results are certified. It goes through a kind of formal process and, and winners are announced. With the presidential election, it goes through more complicated steps. Uh, after the vote totals are certified, then there are a slate of presidential electors in each state. These electors meet. Uh, and they vote. Uh, be interesting to see their uh, socially distant meetings uh, this time, and then those results are um, sent to uh, Congress by the governor. And those uh, results are then announced and counted in early January. And you know, there are all kinds of nightmare scenarios where there are two slates of electors, or we don't know who's won a state, and you know we're still fighting in January. Uh, we don't, you know, under. Our system: if we don't have a president by January twentieth, the current president is no longer president, and we go by the rules of succession. And you know, we could have President Nancy Pelosi, for example. I don't think any of these things are likely. I think they're extremely unlikely to happen. But there are just a number of twists and turns in terms of the contingencies of what could happen.
0: Well, even though these situations are are quite unlikely, uh, maybe it's helpful just to to know some of the ins and outs. So, are the electors required? to abide by the popular vote in their state, or can they go rogue?
1: Well, this was an issue that the Supreme Court addressed uh, in a couple of cases last term. And uh, the short answer is that if a state passes a law that says that the electors have to vote the way that um, uh, the voters of the state uh, as a majority chose, uh, that is, you know, if, if Trump wins the state, they have to vote for Trump. In that circumstance, uh, if a state has a law that says you have to be faithful and not faithless, then uh, they can be removed if they vote a different way. However, not every state has that law. And so it is still possible we could have uh, faithless electors. But you have to recognize that the parties know about this Supreme Court decision. And the parties know that they don't want to take any chances. So they are picking, you know, the strongest Trump or Biden loyalists you can imagine to be the the slate of electors uh, so that (laughs) these people would not be subject to influence or uh, some kind of, um, you know, attempt to influence them to vote a different way when it comes to the electoral college votes. And then, of course, you know, these votes are sent to Congress and there's a convoluted set of rules. Uh, What if the House and the Senate don't agree? And, you know, you could potentially have a Democratic-led House and a... Republican Senate. If there's a tie, then we have a different set of rules where the House votes, where each state delegation is given one vote. So it's one state, one vote. Um, And there are more Republican delegations than are Democratic delegations. It's just, you know, potentially huge problems. There's also a set of federal statutory rules that apply in this context. But there are some arguments that some aspects of the statute violate the Constitution. It would just be a, a total mess. And, you know, it suggests that at some point, this country really needs to get its act together and streamline the process for choosing the president, which is uh, something we should have done years ago. That would be
0: that would make the whole situation a fair bit easier if we had a a more streamlined process. And, uh, you know, something that was not quite so confusing, since it seems like election law experts like yourself are probably some of the the few people who actually understand, you know, what goes on at, at stage 10 of a process like this. But as you mentioned earlier, we're in this very polarized political moment, um, and the the parties have, have grown more separate over the years, even since the year 2000. And so if the election results aren't immediately clear on election night, you know, that could lead to some unfortunate results, but what can listeners do between now and election to play their part in making sure the process is smooth and fair uh, and that their vote gets counted?
1: Well, that's a great question. So the first thing I would say is um, register to vote. Uh, California has same-day voter registration, but a lot of states don't. A lot of states, 30 days before the election or or you can't vote. So register to vote and have a voting plan. Uh, I think if it's possible to vote early, either in person or by mail, voting early, uh, is sensible. We don't know what election day is going to look like. And you can help flatten the absentee uh, ballot curve by uh, getting your mail-in ballot early. And so the post office and uh, election officials can, can handle your ballot, uh, especially we've got a lot of uh, younger vo- voters who are probably listening to this podcast. Um, think about volunteering to be a poll worker uh, uh, or you know, work on a campaign or a get out the vote effort. You know? There's a lot of opportunities, especially poll workers are important because uh, we usually rely on older Americans to act as poll workers, but they may be less available because of the pandemic, because they're su- particularly susceptible. In addition to that, I think we want to make sure that we demand transparency of our election officials so we know exactly how they're counting the votes, when the vote totals will be announced and, and, and all of that. And, you know, be wary of misinformation and disinformation and make sure that the, you, you're not part of the problem by spreading disinformation about the election, how it's run and all of that.
0: Well, thank you for that uh, advice, Professor Hassan, and thank you for joining me today on the UCI Podcast.
1: It's been a pleasure.
0: The UCI Podcast is a production of Strategic Communications and Public Affairs at the University of California, Irvine. Please subscribe to the UCI Podcast wherever you listen.